Welcome, everyone, to episode 49. We are recording this on January 26th, and this is always a, uh, listeners of the podcast know this, January 26th for me is always a big day in the Sonnen household because today is Eddie Van Halen's birthday. <laughs> uh, he would have been 68 today, so I wanted to start off by saying happy birthday to Eddie Van Halen. Uh, very important to me. Um, but I'm really excited for this episode. Uh, both of our guests have challenged me to think about the COO role in different ways during our work together and preparing for today's discussion. So I think all of you will enjoy hearing what they have to say. Our first guest is Alex Satterfield from Byron Financial, located in Charlotte, North Carolina. PFI Advisors has worked with Byron on and off for a little over a year now, and we've gotten to know Alex really well since he joined the firm late last year. So, Alex, welcome to the COO Roundtable. Thanks so much, Matt. Good to be here. And joining us today from Tobias Financial Advisors in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, is Edgar Collado. I was introduced to Edgar by Sean Kapazinski. I know a lot of our listeners know Sean, and I've really enjoyed getting to know him. Edgar's bio on the firm's website states, quote, Edgar currently serves as chief operating officer. He oversees the firm's day-to-day -day operations and procedures leads compliance, marketing, finance, human resources, technology, and administration processes. Our listeners have heard me say many times that the COO's job description is often do everything around here that isn't getting done. And I think Edgar's bio pretty much sums, sums that up perfectly. So welcome, Edgar, and I'm excited to have you here. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate the invitation. Glad to be here. And we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> Yes, yes, all of those tasks on, on your shoulders. So, well, Alex, I'll start with you. Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of background on Byron Financial? Yeah, absolutely. So Byron started in 1985. Our founder, Bill Byron, was really a dedicated insurance and life insurance salesman. And as he got to know his clients, found a niche with clients that were first-generation wealth, a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, and a lot of them needed help beyond the life insurance part of their planning. So in 2005, Bill stood up Investment RIA, and it was really a, a one-person shop alongside Bill's life insurance business all the way up to 2019. And in 2019, Bill took a step back and realized, hey, there's a lot more we can do for our clients. This whole investment advisory component of our business is the bigger need for our client base for uh, and the place to grow. So that became the sole focus in 2019. And at that point, we had around 175 million assets under management. We sit today at uh, nearly 700 million. So since 2019, that becoming the focus, it has certainly shown in the in the growth. But we have uh, also a team of soon to be eight, seven currently. We're looking to hire now and could be as many as 10, depending on the growth track and everything uh, by the end of the year. Yeah, I, I mentioned we worked with, with you guys for a little while now. Tremendous growth. And uh, that's that's why you were brought on. And we'll, we're going to talk a lot about that, the, the different things that you're trying to institute to support all of that growth. And I know that's that's on the minds of a lot of our listeners. So you're the, you're the perfect guest to have here. Um, Edgar, uh, give us a rundown on Tobias Financial Advisors. Definitely happy to. So Tobias Financial Advisors, we're based in Plantation, Florida. We've been around as a firm since 1980. We actually celebrated our 40-year anniversary a couple of years back. We also had a different founding. We were founded uh, as a CPA firm, or tax and accounting, mainly for business owners. And our founder, uh, you know, at the time kind of realized that a lot of the advice that his tax and you know and bookkeeping clients were getting from their quote unquote financial advisors was pretty bad. So he said, you know what, if they're giving this kind of advice, I know I can do a better job. And he started branching out into the financial planning space. And you know, about nine years into it, he he did a full conversion and completely got rid of the tax accounting business and converted into a more of a financial planning firm, which we are today. 
We are a fee-only firm, meaning that uh, you know we we really pride ourselves in, in getting compensated fully based on the advice uh, that we're giving to clients. We uh, have had a tremendous amount of growth over the last five years. You know, uh, in fact, uh, our founder decided, you know, just several years ago that it was time for him to kind of let go of the reins um, and sold the firm to to our current owners. You know, we were you know, in kind of like in the 200 range AUM in 2016, 2017, and are currently approaching 700 million. So we had a significant amount of growth on the AUM side. We were about five employees or four or five employees, and we're currently at 19. Uh, we have a strong foundation in tax and tax planning. So we've, been, uh, you know, we've invested a lot in building out uh, some of the tax work that we do for our clients. Um, and, and it's, you know, for us, we see it as a, as a tremendous value add above and beyond what clients can, can get from our RIAs. Uh, our ideal client, generally, you know, the, the clients that we really enjoy working with and we would say are, are our ideal clients are, are Gen X, business owners, entrepreneurs, you know, average AUM of three to five million. But besides that, from a qualitative perspective, uh, you know, we, we enjoy working with people who are you know, they're really smart, they're really strong and leaders in their industries and, and just don't have the time to take care of their personal side of the thing. So most of our clients have been tremendously successful in their business, but consequently have neglected, you know, their, their financial house. And then we come in and really help them from an estate planning, tax planning, uh, obviously financial planning and investment management to, to set them up so that they can, you know, be as successful personally as they have been professionally. Great. Both of your firms, tremendous growth in the last uh, five years or so. Um, almost almost identical growth, roughly 200 million to 700. That's great. So Edgar, um, you joined Tobias about five and a half years ago from outside the industry. Why don't you walk us through your career progression to where you are today? Definitely. So yeah, I have a bit of an interesting kind of career path into this space. Um, it's funny because I actually started my career in, in investments and used to work for Dreyfus Mutual Fund and Mellon Bank uh, really early in my career. But then uh, after college, uh, said, hey, I kind of want to leave the investment space and focus more on, on corporate finance and strategy. Uh, worked at AT&T for five years as part of their financial uh, leadership program there. Then left AT&T and worked in real estate for a couple of years, where I was doing not only you know sales and management, very different from finance work I was doing at AT&T. And then went to Ingersoll Rand uh, and Train, the air conditioning company, um, and was part of their finance organization there, starting you know as a senior analyst and uh, and leaving the company as the VP of finance or the CFO for their Latin America uh, air conditioning business. $100 million business with, with about 1,500 employees. It was very interesting to me, you know, in 2017, I was kind of thinking like, what's the next step? What, what do I want to do next? And I had you know, moved to South Florida a couple of years before that. And I was looking for, to jump into something smaller. I want to do something different. I kind of want to leave the, the big corporate environment. And, you know, around the same time, the current CEO and other co-owner of the firm were in the process of buying the firm from, from the founder. You know, they quickly realized that they really enjoyed the work that they did with the clients, but didn't enjoy as much, nor had the time to, to do everything else that needed to be done at the firm. So I got a call one day and said, hey, you know, would you consider coming in working for us? Um, and I said, well, I hadn't thought about it. You're you know, a little smaller than I, than I had you know, been looking well, let's let's talk, um, and then you know that's that's kind of like all she wrote. Uh, five years later, you know I've been in the role. Um, I love it for many reasons. You know mainly because I do wear a lot of hats, uh, but also because I get to make an impact every day. You know in the firm and the growth in the firm, and in the professional development of a lot of the people that that surround me. So it's been a tremendous experience. I definitely have a different background, finance, corporate strategy, but I've been able to bring a lot of that experience. Uh, and implemented here, which I think has has helped a lot of our growth. If you ask our our CEO, um, you know, one of the things that have contributed to our growth over the last five years has been the ability for her and the other owner to step away from the day to day management of the firm and focus on client service. For us, that's been really uh, dramatically impactful. Thank you for uh, for going through that story and for for that last comment. That's that's the whole point of this podcast. Uh, I'm a lot of, you know, this, but I get so frustrated with the, 
uh, mentality in our industry. Oh, those those ops folks, those the, you know, pat us on the head. Those, those ops folks, they're uh, an expense, but they're not driving the growth of the of the organization. It's all about the sales team, the sales team, and, and the advisors uh, that are bringing in the business. But um, what you said is so important. You freed everyone up to go focus on business development, and your firm couldn't have grown the way it has in the last several years without without you in that in that role. Super important. So thank you. And Alex, I mentioned you joined Byron last year. You were supporting RIAs, but you haven't worked at an RIA yet. So why don't you walk us through your, your career path? Yeah, yeah. So I um, I actually started my career with Vanguard, part of an accelerated development program right in the middle of 2008, which was perfect time to join financial industry. <laughs> and I love Vanguard. The mission, the way that they do business, and the way that you see an organization come together when under fire, when the whole industry is under fire, right? It just... It taught me a whole lot, but over a, a 12 plus year career at Vanguard, I got a lot of experience under one roof. I had the opportunity coming out of the development program to lead support service centers. You know, I learned a lot about financial planning. Uh, I actually wanted to become a, a CFP, so I started and, and finished that journey very quickly and then moved into relationship management for high net worth. Work my way into uh, having a $26 billion book of business and a team of 12 and very talented, very good relationship managers and, and planners that help to uh, really get to know their clients over a million and, and take care of that whole house um, and that whole book, uh, broader book and drive some really um, meaningful sales goals and um and uh, planning uh, planning efforts just to do the right thing for the clients. Um, but I also had a chance to work in our strategy um, in IT and project and program management. Um, and Vanguard also supported me to do my MBA uh, outside um, early mornings, late nights at, at Wake Forest University. Um, so I, I had a phenomenal career at Vanguard. I learned a ton. Um, and you know, through ultimately my MBA, I realized that this is uh, an opportunity to look in the mirror and see who am I and what's the what's the impact and legacy and and um, you know what do I enjoy the most and uh, you know I think that ultimately um, I've got an entrepreneur background. Um, my dad owned his own business uh, as an optometrist. Uh, my wife is a estate planning attorney, um, you know, hung her own shingle, does her own thing. And um, I think that the RIA space is filled with entrepreneurs that are just bright go-getters. Um, and at the end of the day, an entrepreneur and an RIA has the highest accountability. I mean, their name is on the wall. Um, it's their clients that they went out and got in their business. Um, and I really valued the independence, right? We're not trying to pitch our own product or do our own thing and, um, you know, very organically grow through our own compliments and offer, but their sole focus is the client in front of them across the desk or, you know, on a Zoom call or wherever, um, but their, their clients are their sole focus and it's unbiased. And I just love that about this space and this industry. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I had an opportunity to, to um, just cross paths with the leadership at Adhesion. Um, they outsource all the investing and empower RIAs and, and create, and they have the second largest model marketplace of UMAs and SMA investments that allow advisors to be advisors. Um, and it's just a fantastic mission. It's it's helping the good guys, right? Is what it felt like every single day. Um, and I and I love the people. I miss the people, and I, I miss the clients. So anyone that's that's listening that was a client, uh, you are missed. And um, you know, certainly uh, the I led the service um, initially in onboarding, um, and then ultimately also assumed all the relationship management. Um, and as I so moved into the relationship management side, uh, working with Adhesion for a couple of years, um, 
you know, passion's contagious. And these entrepreneurs and advisors were so passionate about their clients and their uh, the way that they're making an impact in their clients' lives that, uh, you know, I, I realized how much I missed it, uh, going back to when I led a book of business. Um, and uh, wasn't looking, but um, ultimately had a, an opportunity to come and build that here at Byron. Well, in addition to freeing up the folks so that they can go do business development, we we just published an article the other day that talked about the COO as the main strategic thinker at an RIA. Most RIA owners are financial advisors at heart, and they're always going to self-identify as a financial advisor first and a business owner fourth or fifth down down the down the line. So when you ask them, what hey, what are your strategic goals for next year? A lot of the time you, you get the answer, well, we want more. We want more AUM, we want more clients, we want more advisors, et cetera. But it takes the COO to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, what type of clients do we want more of this year? What service offering is going to best attract that ideal client that we've identified? What types of what type of business are we really trying to build here? And these are all incredibly important questions. But in my experience, without a competent COO in place, these questions are often missed. So Edgar, I'll go to you first on this one. How are you involved in the strategic thinking and planning at Tobias? I mean, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head with, you know, most of the owners or founders of, of RIAs are our advisors and they really enjoy that aspect of the business. And like I said before, not so much the aspect of running a company yeah. and, you know, in our experience, um, you know, when, when I came here, I started asking some of those questions that you mentioned uh, also around, you know, what, what's our kind of uh, winning aspiration and what are our long-term goals and what, where do we see in ourselves in five years? You know, we were good at, at annual budgeting because, you know, you kind of always have to do a budget, but we weren't very good on the long-term um, and who we wanted to be as a firm and thinking about all the aspects that go into that. So I actually, you know, run our strategic planning process and we do it every year. We don't go as deep every year as I would like to uh, due to time constraints. But when we do, we kind of look at a set of broad categories that we, that we ask questions on, right? So, um, you know, what, what's happening in our industry? What are some of the trends and implications that are important that we should be worried about or, or aware of? And, and what actions do we need to take? Uh, what's happening, you know, across the different customer segments and the way investors are, are hiring advisors is there change in, in that you know, what are some of the capabilities that we need right so you know like one of the things that we ran into early on after i started was we're getting approached by a lot of you know high earning professionals really successful in their careers they hadn't really accumulated a lot of investment assets and most advisors were turning them away uh, but these are a great opportunity for us that's going to guarantee uh, at least some of our growth into the future. Developed an offering to fit those type of clients. And um, they weren't, quote unquote, the ideal client at the time, but they will grow into that. Um, you know, and then what are, you know, what are some of the, the, the systems that we need in place? That's HR systems or operational systems, or I think we'll talk about it in a little while. What's the, the right organizational structure? So these are all the types of question that, you know, when you're busy working with clients and then, you know, your, your quote unquote, you know, operating role as a, as a CEO or, or an owner of an RIA is, is done in the evening after dinner and your kids are in bed, <laughs> you know, you may not have the time to think this way. Yeah. And Alex, talk to us how you've brought this type of thinking to the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be the first to say there's there's no shortage of ideas and, and even better problem to have, no shortage of good ideas here at our firm. But I have found that what we have to do is take a step back. Um, and Edgar alluded to this, but you got to ask, like, what's our North Star, right? What is it that we do really, really well? How do we get clients? How does how does this work? How does our RIA work? What do people say about us? What do we want them to say about us? Yeah. And sometimes even before you start asking those questions, you got to ask, why are we in business? Like, what, what are we doing? And what do we want to be when we grow up? Yeah. And for us, our firm, we've taken that step back and we've said we are about a premier client experience. You know, I love that. Everyone will say that. But what does that mean? It means we haven't 
lost a client in the last three years. Now I am knocking on wood because that's something that you can always uh, mm -hmm. say, but, but never take for granted, right? All that goes with that. But we just pour into our clients to make sure that they have a total white glove premier experience. And because we do that, we are able to do the follow-up question of, well, who else do you know that's not having a good experience? And we build out our referrals, which then leads to ultimately new business. And with that new business is an opportunity to create yet another premier client experience. It's a simple cycle, but it's worked. It's accelerated our growth and grassroots marketing. But we had to first ask, what is our North Star and how are we going to assess the health of the client experience and the health of our referral network and the health of the new business that we're bringing in in terms of quality and quantity of prospects? And how do we measure our success at these things? And how do we know where we are at any given point in time? And that's our core business. So we've taken steps back to then say, how do we define success qualitatively and quantitatively and continue to sharpen each of those three elements? And then at the same time, what's happening in our broader industry? What's happening in our community? What are local trends happening in the North Carolina regional Charlotte market for us? And how do we really identify the driving forces and the whys behind each of those events and each of those trends? Then our business comes to a, an intersection of, do we want to lead? Do we want to follow fast? Is that out of scope for us? Is that not something that we do well and we just want to watch it monitor these trends? So ultimately, strategy is about being true to who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and while strategic thinking is so vitally important to the firm, as we just discussed, we, we don't always want it coming from the top down. Uh, some of the greatest innovations to the business can come from the employees that are in the trenches every day, working directly with the clients and seeing and hearing what roadblocks are coming up on a regular basis or or just knowing what repeated requests are coming from the, from the clients. So Alex, uh, how do you get the entire team involved in this strategic planning process? Yeah, I love that question, Matt. I mean, I think this is really a leadership kind of question at the end of the day. And I think I think it starts with making sure the entire team knows why they're here and why we're here as a firm. If everyone is committed and bought in to that mission and whatever you're going to do to assess the quality, um, either numerically or, or quantitatively, everyone's bought into the system, it's so much easier. But then as the COO or, or any leader, as a, as a manager, as a team leader, as a uh, you know, director, where any point in my career, it's my responsibility as a people leader to know how and know, know their what and know what their struggles and challenges are and know their day to day. And that doesn't come by closing the door in my office. That comes from, you know, regular touch points, one-on-ones. And in those one-on-ones, I probably listen more than I talk. Uh, it, it's probably 70-30. And I don't think I was hired at any point in my career or any point that I'm going to have all the answers. I think it's to maximize the answers from within and from within the team. It starts with that listening, but then it comes with creating places that are safe for those ideas to come together and then be prioritized and then be acted upon with clear assignment of who owns what by when and, you know, how are we going to um, be better from it? And when that transparency, that line of sight and that empowerment is in and those boundaries are set with priorities and resources that just allow people to be successful you know passion's contagious but success is too <laughs> and uh if people are loving what they're doing they're seeing the results you can really get it humming uh the whole machine and i think that's you know much more about leadership than it is any other skill and edgar i know this has been a priority for you talk to us about how you approach this Sure. And this is, you know, when we looked at the capabilities, like I mentioned before, that were important, one of the ones that kept coming up was um, the team's ability to really think and act strategically. And 
what does that mean, right? So yes, when you're a smaller firm and you know you have five employees, you know, generally a lot of the direction is coming from the top. And I'd frankly be lying to you if I told you that that we're perfect here. This is an area that we've struggled with, and we're currently in the process of thinking through what is the ba- the best way to really put this into practice. But when you think about thinking and acting strategically, there's that that encompasses so so many things, right? So what we've done is we've looked at some of the the capabilities and the competencies that we think our teams need to have in order to think and act strategically happen anywhere in the organization, you know, from the receptionist to the advisor to the client rep to the marketing person. Anyone can really think and act strategically and how do we really give them A, the tools and resources that they need to do so, but B, give them a lot of the coaching and guidance so they can they can think through how to do that best. And I'll give you an example the use of data, right? So, you know, if you're coming with a decision and saying, hey, I think we should do this, I think we should enter this market or this or that, back it up with some data, present and share data that's, you know, intellectually honest uh, and is not necessarily like an opinion. The other uh, aspect of this is around the communication. Um, and we've, you know, we're, again, we, we don't do a great job this, but we make an effort to communicate to the team what are our strategic goals, Sometimes a lot of these conversations happen in a closed room with two or three people. If that's happening in your firms, then there's no way the rest of the team can truly be aligned to your strategic goals if they don't even know what they are. One of the things that's also equally important is the ability to kind of have an open and honest communication uh, in the company and at the firm and realizing that some of the capabilities and some of the, the ideas that are going to come from uh, in regards to new strategies, in regards to the execution of, of priorities and initiatives that you have, um, and even how to prioritize and what you should focus on is going to come from a lot of places in the organization. So providing the tools and the resources and really giving the team uh, the ability to speak up when they think something is not right, um, I think are, 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 are truly some of the things that are going to help an organization set themselves apart um, and realizing that, that all the ideas don't have to come from the top um, and allowing the organization to share those ideas and providing some sort of feedback loop is going to have a, a big impact. You know, the other thing uh, that we've done too is, you know, we've invested in our team so they can develop these skills. You know, we took some of our advisors last year and we sent them to leadership training and management training. Uh, one of my advisors is currently getting their MBA. So, you know, we're being very proactive uh, about trying to develop these capabilities in the organization. And as we grow and as we start delegating things to other people, it's going to become more and more important. I think that's exactly right. Edgar, I think that's awesome. And I think you bring up really good points. I mean, one thing I would add to that is as we go through managing and, and actually setting the expectation that you can contribute from any chair, it's also important to reward that, like when you see it and, and to do that publicly. One thing that uh, I've seen done very, very well at Vanguard in particular is if a new idea comes up, you know, they would reward that on the spot and, and celebrate it. And, you know, it would be a new story that kind of goes around the before, the after, the impact that this person had. You know, it's frequently didn't come from top down. When you do that time and time again, it not only makes it safe, but it becomes ingrained in your culture. And it's a big part of who you are as an organization, what you believe, and then you're you're now living it, right? And I think that that's, you know, just a, a key important part that is, yes, a motivator for the employees and for the staff, but certainly um, a big part of your identity as a firm. Great. Well, Alex, as, as you did your assessment of the firm when you first joined, I know you came up with a, a long list of things that you wanted to improve or to tweak or to implement. Uh, how did you set out to make a priority list? You can't you can't tackle everything at once. So how did you determine what to work on now versus what items would be a next quarter initiative versus what tasks were going to be a next year initiative? Yeah, <laughs> I'm laughing because this is the hardest part. And and this is, uh, you know, I think something because, you know, I see the potential and I see the really good ideas. And I I think that I'm a firm believer and there's multiple ways to get to one destination. And I want it all yesterday at the same time. And I don't think that any of the ideas, concepts or priorities are unreasonable. 
But you're right. If you focus on 12 things, you're not really focused on anything. And I think that historically, uh, you know, this is a point of pain that that I've seen a number of organizations and and even us fall into as a firm into that trap. What you have to do is take a few steps back and ask, why do we need to focus on this? And why is this a priority? And you know, first you vet it and make sure that it lines up to your North Star that I talked about earlier, but and kind of the core of your business. And assuming that it does, then you got to find out why it's not working as well as it could or what's really behind the problem. And a lot of times you'll come back to a common answer of, well, it's time or, you know, we don't have the right talent uh, or, or something there. But go deeper than that. Is that because you don't have enough people? You're not developing your people the right way or training them the right way or even have a defined role that your people know that this is a priority that they need to contribute to? Are you assessing their performance and does it align to a system of metrics and checks and balances that go all the way up to those KPIs or, or key goals that you have? And if not, then the talent's not just the answer. There's something behind it. Um, or time isn't just the answer. Or, or wherever you come to the conclusion, there's a root cause behind it. So keep peeling that onion. And as you peel the onion, it makes you cry sometimes, <laughs> but it's important. And from there, you design a plan that tackles that root cause. Now, you know, six whole months in the COO role, it's, it, it is drinking from a fire hose at times, right? And I tend to prioritize, Matt, to answer your question just more succinctly, and what are we best equipped to do? How much time is it going to take to get this going or to get this in a better space? You know, let's make sure that we're not just saying the answer is to hire someone, but let's build out what that role is going to be, how they're going to do it, what changes that's going to have to the people working alongside this person and their roles and responsibilities, how we're going to train them. You can't just stop at the first step. You've got to plan it all the way through to do it right. And that's why all of this, it, it takes time, it takes discipline, um, and it takes saying no to some things that could be distractions, right, to keep you from realizing the potential of whatever it is that you're currently working on. And so it's a balancing act at the end of the day. If you find out what's really behind it and kind of the root cause, you're always going to be in a better position to tackle it. And then if you align what's going on with your organization, with your key priorities, then you're going to give it the time it deserves to see it all the way through the finish. Yeah, I love that answer. And Edgar, at the at the top of the interview, I, I rattled off all the areas of the firm that you have your hands in. How, how do you prioritize your never-ending to-do list? Yeah, so I joke, uh, you know, my title COO, which means a chief of other. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a it's a constant constant juggling act, um, and it you know it becomes ever more challenging as you start hiring people to take over some of their responsibilities because you know no longer is it just making time to do the work, but it's also making the time to to help someone else and guide and coach them to be successful. Ba backing up to to kind of answer your question. Uh, you know, when when I first started, a little more time than, than Alex has been in the role. And Alex said, I wish I could say it gets better <laughs> or easier. Um, and some aspects might, but but it becomes even more and more challenging over time. But, you know, one of the first things I did was I kind of, I, I met with everyone in the organization and I, you know, from function to function, kind of outlined what are some of the pain points? Uh, what are some of the things that people wish were done differently? What are some of the things that people want to stop doing? And I put together like literally a big, huge laundry list of things that um, I think as a firm we we want to get done. Um, and then came the exercise of really kind of honing in on some of the key priorities at the time. And, you know, one of the things that I learned many, many years ago was in this two by two prioritization matrix where you look at things that are high value, but low effort and you do those now. Right. And then you look at things that are low value, but high effort. And those are the things that you maybe decide not to do. Um, and, you know, even though I don't necessarily kind of ha have and look at something like this every single day, it's the mentality that we go into uh, whenever we're trying to make decisions around prioritization is what are those things 
They're going to have the most value and take the less effort. And let's just get those done like as soon as possible, right? Low hanging fruit, so to speak. Um, and some of the things that are maybe high value, but are going to take more effort are some of those things that you're going to start planning for, or maybe delegating to someone else on your team. And that's really helped us kind of work through that. On the, uh, you know, on an annual basis, right, we, we kind of start the year off with a list of goals and things that we want to accomplish. And we think realistically, how much can we actually get done? You know, I read a book a couple of years ago called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And it, it, it jokes and talks about how, you know, the word priority and prioritization by definition kind of means one thing, right? So as humans, you can really only do one thing really well at, at a time. And, the, and, and over, over time, prior priorities became like a list of priorities. So, you know, we always focus is what is that one thing that needs to get done now? You know, whether that's, you know, day-to-day -day things like, okay, we have to update our ADV. So for these couple of weeks, that's what I'm working on. That's my number one priority. And kind of thinking with that mindset, like what's that one thing that I need to do next that's going to incrementally get me closer to hitting my goal? At the same time, it's important to, to be flexible, right? Realistically, business change. People you know, change, people leave, people come. In our industry, markets are very volatile, right? So you have to be willing and able to be flexible. I mean, a very simple example, and maybe one that a lot of your listeners may be going through, you know, we've historically been um, our custody with TD Ameritrade, right? So Schwab bought TD Ameritrade, and this year they're going to be transitioning all the TDA clients to, to Schwab. Well, that was never in my long-term strategic plan. But so there's things that I had to push off my to-do list and now my team and I need to focus on making sure that that happens seamlessly and doesn't impact our clients negatively. So being flexible is equally as important. Um, you know, nothing that we write from a strategic planning perspective is set in stone. You have to be willing to, to flex as, as the business needs it. Um, and then lastly, I think, you know, really important to learn for, from your mistakes. You're going to, you're going to make wrong decisions or bad decisions, right? You're going to uh, ultimately do something that you wish you hadn't done, or maybe done something not as good as you you, you wish you had. But what's important is, is, are you learning from that, right? So maybe it's a, a hire, maybe it's a, a you know workflow that you put into place or a process that you kind of re-engineered. It, it doesn't stop, right? Once once that quote unquote project is done, you know, let's see if, if there's a better way to do this. Um, and having that kind of mentality of continuously improving continuously learning also helps a lot uh, when you think about working through your priorities and what you want to get done. Fantastic. With so many tasks and initiatives on everyone's plate, it's it's always tempting for RIAs to say, well, let's not do these tasks ourselves. We're going to outsource them. But outsourcing can be a tricky concept. Many tasks can't or shouldn't be outsourced and really need to be handled in-house. And then other tasks, even when you do outsource them, there's still a lot of work and responsibility left in the hands of the RIA's employees. So many firms find themselves frustrated because they thought they were completely ridding themselves of certain responsibilities, but then they find out that their employees are still handling certain aspects of those outsourced tasks. So Edgar, talk to us about how you determine what can be outsourced and to what extent certain tasks can be outsourced. Sure, Matt. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that it's never an easy decision, right? It's always difficult when you're thinking about outsourcing. And I always come back to, you know, what are the capabilities that I either need or want to have at the firm? And am I willing to invest in that internally? Or am I okay, you know, handing that off to someone else? So, you know, I know a lot of firms, for example, work with uh, PEOs, right? And they outsource a lot of the, the HR related stuff. And we've talked about it and it comes up every couple of years, but for me, like that's a capability that I think it's so important in our industry that I, I, I don't wanna outsource this. I, I'd rather do it in-house, even if it takes us a little bit more time. I wanna be and have the flexibility to kind of do HR the way we wanna do it um, because it is such an important aspect of our business. And even something like payroll, where you think, hey, I'm going to outsource my payroll and, um, you know, I, I can just go to sleep and not worry about it. It's just not the way it works. 
um, ultimately the you know the the buck is going to stop with us. And if someone has an issue with their paycheck, or if there's a bonus that needs to be paid out, or a raise that needs to be reflected, like these are all things that need to come from us. So I just I didn't find like I would get the value out of outsourcing that, for example. You know, we look at the idea of outsourcing compliance, and that's another thing, right? The SEC is not going to take, well, I outsourced it, so that's why that's not working the way it's supposed to be as an excuse. So ultimately, I need to be able to um, stand behind, you know, what we're doing as a firm. Um, you know, there are some things that we've outsourced, but I'll tell you, marketing, for example, you know, we've, we outsourced a lot of the marketing initially, but at some point, you know, we came to the, the conclusion that while we enjoy and we do work with an outside firm, we were missing something. Um, and that something was the ability to have someone in-house that can, you know, go advisor by advisor and interview them and get ideas and, and help and go to events and speak to prospects and work with our COI. And, you know, we hired a marketing person um, last year and it's been a tremendous value add. We still outsource some of the marketing work, but again, it came back to what capabilities do I want to have in-house? Do I think I can develop in-house versus those that I know that I can outsource? Um, it's it's tough. I mean, it, you know, yeah, there's some things I can do and maybe save money on if I outsource. Uh, but I, you know, as a firm, I also, and especially in our industry because it's so heavily regulated, I, I appreciate having the ability to to control some of those things more than if I outsourced it. Now, things like, you know, we at some point we did a lot of our rebalancing using spreadsheets, right? This is some time ago. Uh, you know, we used TRX for a while, and now we use Orion's Eclipse. So that was smart, right? Okay. To leverage technology, to outsource some of that in a way, uh, but to still retain some of the control. Um, and so it's kind of, it's a balancing act, Matt, to be honest with you. Uh, something that, you know, every year comes up, you know, what are some things that we can do um, or outsource more of? Um, and it's not always about saving money. Sometimes it's also, you know, do, can, do I have someone who has a high level of skill in my organization that's spending a lot of time on something that's not necessarily equally as value adding, right? And then maybe that's something that we can outsource. You know, for me, I have a finance and accounting background. So for me, it's very easy to work in QuickBooks and balance accounts and, and do all that because I'm very comfortable with it, but it's not necessarily where I add the most value to the organization. So that's something that I've outsourced almost from day one. And actually I'm in the process of interviewing to do a higher level of outsourcing there because I, it's still taking up more of the time that, than I have than I would like so that I can focus on things that are more important. So, you know, it's a continuous evaluation. It's, you know, looking back and saying, hey, what do I want to have in-house? What capabilities do I want to develop in-house that I think are going to be important that are going to be get me closer to that North Star that Alex mentioned? And what are some of those things that I'm okay if I'm not doing them at, at my level, um, but that, it, you know, I, I'm able to outsource it and get it at a level enough that I'm satisfied with uh, without it negatively impacting um, our business. And Alex, coming from adhesion, I know the story there is very much, hey, RIAs, outsource your investment management to us. So I know you're very familiar with the concept of outsourcing. Now that you're working in an RIA, what has been your experience with outsourcing other functions beyond just investment management? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a great question. And, you know, I, I would actually go back. I mean, I think uh, Edgar's and I's background is very similar because we came from large organizations where we're managing leaders of leaders, teams of teams, likely had dozens of people. And going from that to an RIA that is seven now, soon to be eight, it is a shock and, and it's different. But one thing that I noticed when I was considering coming to Byron was we're seven people. I'll be number seven, but we do have a PEO. We do have, you know, outsourced partners with, you know, trading um, our bonds and, and fixed income and different specialties and different things that we do, marketing. Uh, you know, we have a lot of partners that get us through. And you almost have to think of each of those partners as your own employees. And what do you do with your employees? I like to have a quarterly review. Two of them are informal and two of them are, are relatively formal, like check-ins. What are you supposed to be doing? What are the goals? What are the objectives? Here's your performance. You have to manage your vendors and your relationships that same way. So while we're short in terms of headcount, the way you manage and set expectations and really know what you're getting into 
you should have vendor quarterly reviews. And honestly, I learned that from adhesion because I was on the other side of that table having presidents and COOs interview me about why they should stay with adhesion. Sometimes it would be an annual, sometimes it would be every six months, but that's where I really got to build that relationship and strengthen it and showcase the value that by outsourcing this, here's what you're getting. And so, so much of it, I think gets back to what are the elements of your core business? For us, it's experience referrals and getting new business, right? And so there's different components of that. You wouldn't never outsource anything that lines up directly to those things, but everything else, it's worth that consideration. I think Edgar brought it up perfectly of what are the capabilities that you need and have to have, but then it's what's the best path to get it. You're going to interview any person that you want to bring in and hire full-time. Edgar says he interviews his vendor relationships and prospects, and that's exactly how you have to think of it. You have to interview them too, but you also have to check in and make sure that they're going in the right direction. Yeah. And you have to recognize, look, whoever you're interviewing as a vendor, that's their sales team. It's their professional interviewer, right? They are the pro at interviewing. So you've got to go a step past that with your due diligence to make sure you're on the same page with a reasonable set of expectations, yep. because that's how you have a truly long lasting, durable partnership with those terms. And that's what you want. You want a partner. You don't want a vendor. And this space being a largely open architecture has a lot of choices out there, sometimes a paralyzing amount of choices. But it's not so much about, did I choose the right one? It's also, am I managing them the same way I would manage this in-house, right? With the same expectations, the same checkpoints to make sure that I'm getting what I need. And you have to assess that periodically. Well, one last question I'll throw out to, to both of you. Our, our listeners hear me say all the time that I believe 75% of a CEO's job is HR. It's It's determining which employees are filling which seats, when to hire new employees, how to fit those new employees into the existing team and, and make sure everyone understands their specific role and responsibilities, et cetera. So Edgar, how do you get the right people in the right seats? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, going back to what we just talked about outsourcing and all that, I mean, uh, you know, another aspect of what we looked at, and actually we looked at this when I first joined, when we did our strategic plan, is what is the right organization structure? Even about, you know, you forget about, the right people in the right seats is how do you determine what are those seats, right? So that's the first question. And, and what's that structure that makes sense for you? So we looked at and evaluated all the different possible reporting structures, you know, in, in our industry, right? From traditional kind of vertical organizations to more horizontal ones to the strategic ones. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, Angie Herber's diamond structure, which a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with. Yep. Um, and we settled on something similar to the diamond structure, because for us, what was most important, uh, there were, were two things. So so one is having some some clarity on when I needed to 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 hire someone. Right. So when do I need another advisor um, or, or or another client service person or whatever role it is that I'm trying to fill? But also, am I providing the kind of environment and structure that's going to help everyone in the organization learn and grow in your traditional kind of vertical structure where you have the firm principal with maybe an associate advisor or an, and then a client service person, there's, there's not a lot of flexibility for, for growth and ability for growth. So for us, it was, a, it was about first defining the right structure and then it's defining those roles or those seats as well as you can, right? What are some of the capabilities that you need uh, what are some of the background and experience, credentials, et cetera, that's required for someone to be successful in that job? Uh, I'll tell you, for us on the advisory side, we have a pretty well-defined career path that says, you know, here's where you're starting in the organization, either as a power planner or as a client service associate. And here are the things that you need to get to the next step, the following step, et cetera, et cetera, along with a list of capabilities that you have to develop or be working on in order for, for you to hit that uh, go go into that next level. Um, and we use that not only internally, but we use it externally when we recruit as well. So um, if this is the role that I'm trying to fill, if it's a diamond that I'm trying to build uh, or I'm missing you know, first base or, or a home plate on a diamond, um, it clearly defines who and, and what kind of uh, experience and background I need 
to fill that seat. And that's for us has been really, uh, I would say life-changing in many ways um, because it's A, given us the ability to help people grow and develop and give them more autonomy and responsibility, but B, it's freed up some time for our more senior advisors to do other things that are going to contribute to the firm's goals and growth. And Alex, talk to us about the HR component of your job. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think I think Edgar's spot on that you first have to define the seats um, and then you have to define how the whole organization and collection of seats are going to work together. Edgar, you got a, a lot of really good points in, in that and a lot of wisdom. I think that you also have to make sure, in addition, that everyone is bought into the why, but that there's transparency as to why I'm here and what I'm doing and how I'm doing and how what I do every day contributes to our broader mission. And I think you do that by a series of um, goals, objectives, and milestones, and then check-ins along the way to make sure everything's moving accordingly. So you might have a goal of, for example, I want we want to have just a pure hypothetical 500,000 in new revenue coming in for this year. And so if that's the goal, well then to to get there, how many leads do you need? And to get there, how many new appointments do you need? Uh, first new scene new scene pitches. How many clients do we need to close and within our ideal client market? So if you have accountability and everyone's able to see, hey, I helped hit this revenue target and I, you know, make it fun, right? And, and reward along the way. But also um, I helped hit it because I was responsible for the leads and I got us 200 leads that got us the, you know, 15 new clients or whatever the numbers are, right? It's going to be different for each firm, but everyone being able to see not just the right seats and how they work together, but also they're in contribution to the big picture. I think that's what continues to just motivate and, and keep people there. And it's the COO's responsibility to make sure everything stays on track and that you have vetted out what needs to be successful at every angle and who's going to be responsible for that component of success and how do we make sure that they're trained up and, and ready to perform in that role so that ultimately we're able to meet that, that objective. And so I think that that is really critical. Um, you know, it's not just right people, right seats. It's making sure that it's managed along the way. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Alex and Edgar, thank you both for spending some time with us today and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, that is a wrap on episode 49. We will talk to everyone soon.